You're listening to Tell It from Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here's today's message. I'm going to go with the assumption that we all pray. But what do we pray for? As a church, in our family devotions, family prayers, uh, in your individual, in our individual uh, prayers, as we begin our day, as, or as we go to bed, well, it's safe to guess that we pray for our families. All of us pray for our families. We are grateful when everyone is doing well. We pray for the needs uh, they are facing. We pray for our children to walk in the ways of the Lord and for their well-being. Uh, we pray for our aging parents. So one of the ways of loving our families is praying for them, and we must uh, pray for our families. We also pray for our health. I regularly pray for the health of my family, our church members, and others. I've seen amazing answers to prayers for healing, the most recent one being uh, Sylvia's daughter Janet, who was in the ICU with respiratory distress, but now is back home, uh, doing well thanks to God's grace and the prayers of the saints that were lifted up on her behalf. We ought to pray for health and healing. We pray for the church. I love the prayers of the, the prayer warriors who gather on Wednesday. I, I'm convinced that one of the reasons we are doing as well as we are as a church is because of their prayers. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude when they pray for me and for other pastors. That's a precious gift. We should pray for our church and all the churches to be faithful in their calling. We pray for our country, our nation, and does our country need prayers? Uh, we can sit around and complain about the past or be dismayed about the future. It's far more fruitful to pay, pray for our nation, its leaders, its welfare. We must pray for our nation and the nations of the world. In this uh, fallen world, wars and conflicts between nations cannot be avoided. So we pray for peace, even as we recognize that ultimate final peace will be when the Prince of Peace returns. As wonderful as these prayers are and must be prayed, there is so much more to prayer. The only explicit thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them, at least the one that we have recorded in scripture, was that he would teach them to pray. And he did. We assume that the language of prayer comes natural to us, uh, but it doesn't. Even as children learn how to speak by listening to their parents, <clears throat> we ought to learn to pray by listening to our Heavenly Father, by looking to the prayers in scripture. And that's what we're going to do this morning from our next section. Uh, all of Paul's epistles have wonderful prayers for the recipients, even as uh, Ashley read this morning from Colossians. Uh, Paul is not the only one we can learn from. We have the prayers of Peter and John, and above all, the prayers of our Lord himself. Not only the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray, uh, but his own prayer for his disciples and for us, as recorded in John 17. This morning we're going to look at 
John 3, I mean Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, to learn to pray with the Apostle Paul. Paul prays that we will participate in the mystery that God has revealed. This requires a knowledge of God, the strength of His might, the comprehension of the love of Christ, and the growth to, to all that God intends for us to be for His glory and in the fulfillment of His uh, purpose. Ephesians 1 to 3 is actually, all three chapters is actually an extended uh, prayer. After his initial greetings to the Ephesians, Paul launches into a doxology, praising the triune God for the amazing redemption that he has accomplished for us. He then starts praying for the Ephesians that they will understand the hope of their calling, their, belonging, their, their being God's inheritance, and the power of God that was at work in their lives. And then in chapter 1 verse 20, he, he, he pauses to describe the nature of the power that was in work that is at work in us. It's the same power by which God raised His Son from the dead and exalted Him to His right hand, high above all powers and principalities and authorities that stood opposed to God. Paul in chapter 2 lays out the evidence for Christ's exaltation and power. That Christ is victorious over the powers and is exalted above them is demonstrated by two things. Our freedom from these powers that held us in bondage to the devil, to, to the world, and to the flesh through, through sin and death. And then the second line of evidence he gives is that the end of the animosity between Jews and Gentiles that was exploited by these powers. And God had taken the Jews and Gentiles and united them into one body in Christ, the church, where God himself dwells by his spirit. For all of these wonderful reasons, Paul appears to resume his prayer that he stopped in chapter 1, in chapter 3 verse 1, where he begins with, for this reason. But then as we saw last week, he interrupts his prayer again to clear a couple of questions that may have risen in the minds of his readers concerning what he argued in chapter 2 as evidence for Christ's exaltation over the powers. The questions that could have risen in, uh, concerning Paul's claims, Paul's claims were, as we saw last week, uh, one, uh, how, do you, how did you know these things? Well, uh, Paul clarifies that these things that were previously hidden and a mystery have now been revealed by God uh, to his apostles and prophets and through them to his church and that God is saving the world through Jesus Christ and bringing people together into one body is now public knowledge. It's no longer a mystery. It's been revealed. The second objection that could have risen in the mind of his readers was, well, if Christ is indeed above all powers and authorities, what in the world is this apostle doing rotting in prison? Well, Paul answers this objection by noting that his current imprisonment is not a contradiction, but an affirmation of Christ's exaltation. As much as Christ's victory over the powers was through the weakness of a cross, so also the proclamation of that victory through his apostle was clothed in the same weakness and shame of Paul's imprisonment. The message of Christ's victory proclaimed through the weakness of the apostle, the imprisoned apostle, nonetheless was used by God to bring, bring people to faith in Christ and union with one another and in Christ as the body, the church. And it is through the church that God was putting the powers on notice that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Now, having cleared all possible objections, he begins this section that we're going to look at this morning with the same words that he began chapter 3 verse 1, for this reason. Paul resumes and concludes his prayer, but also chapters 1 to 3, where he declares the glorious works of God, whereby God is gathering all things, things in heaven, things on earth, and bringing them under Christ, so that in Christ, he will renew this entire creation when Christ returns. Ephesians uh, 3:14 to 21 is divided into uh, three sections. In verses 14 and 15, uh, we have Paul's invocation. In verses 16 to 19, he presents three petitions to God. And he concludes his prayer in verses 20 and 21 with a doxology, a praise for God, who does immeasurably more than we can ask or think from the riches of His glory. Paul begins with an invocation. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. For this reason. What reason? He resumes what he began in chapter 1, verse 3, where he said the same thing. For this reason, the reasons that stated in the first two chapters, the glorious redemption accomplished by our triune God, the exalted Christ who has freed us from death and sin, from the powers, Christ's triumph, which is demonstrated by his gathering people who are previously opposed to each other into one body where they are united and equal. And into a household of God where God himself dwells by his spirit. For all these reasons, Paul prays. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. Bowing the knee is not only a posture for prayer, but also a posture of submission before the one who has all authority. Paul has in mind Isaiah 45, 23, where God declares that to him every knee shall bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. Paul explains in Philippians chapter 2 that God will fulfill this through the exalted Christ to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As important as bowing the knee is, more important is uh, to whom the knee is bent. Here it is to his, uh, before this Father in heaven that Paul bows in submission, in humility, in prayer. Paul addresses God as Father about 42 times in his letters, 8 times in Ephesians. Uh, and he acknowledges the, the, just the cosmic scope of God's fatherhood as creator. Knowing God as Father makes all the difference in our prayers. We come to the one who is our creator. He's the one who cares for our needs. Our Lord, when he taught us to pray, when he taught his disciples to pray, he started by acknowledging who we pray to. We pray to our Father who is in heaven. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells us when we come to the Father, we don't try to manipulate God with our many words and repetitions like the pagans who don't know God. Instead, we come to the one who already knows our needs even before we ask him. He is the one, Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, who gives us good gifts even when we don't know what to ask or ask for the wrong things. When we begin our prayers acknowledging God as Father, we are coming to the one who loves us and is able to grant us our requests according to His good purposes. And not just for us, but for all creation. Paul tells us it is this, from this Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It's from God our Father 
that every family on in heaven and on earth, both angelic beings and humans are named. Naming in scripture indicates ownership, authority, sovereignty. And God's authority, sovereignty, and ownership extends over all creation, over all creatures. He's the God of all nations. He's the father of all people uh, who find their source in Him as their creator. And God has not abandoned His creation. God has not abandoned the nations. He promised to Abraham that He would bless the nations through Him. And now He is fulfilling that promise in His Son, Jesus Christ, to whom He is calling people from every tribe and tongue and nation to be His children through faith in Jesus Christ. The divisions that were caused by the fall was an affront to God who is the creator of all things. In redemption, God is unifying all that He has created in Christ and reclaiming to Himself all that belongs to Him. And it belongs and it begins with the unity in the church. The unity in the church is the evidence and testimony to a watching world, a watching divided world that the Father of all is uniting to Himself all that was and is divided. Paul, Paul's invocation acknowledges God as sovereign and powerful, as ruler over all creation. He's the source of life. It is only this God who is able to grant Paul's request that he will present in the next verses. It matters that we know who we are praying to. That will inform how we pray, what we pray. So the invocation prompts the petitions that are to follow and leads to the doxology that concludes the prayer. Paul presents uh, three petitions in Ephesians 3, 16 to 19, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant to you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The grammatical structure with those three that clauses that you see underlined uh, indicates there are three petitions that Paul makes uh, to this God who is the Father in whom all nations, all people are named. He prays that they would be strengthened in Christ through God's Spirit. He prays that they would comprehend the love of Christ, which is incomprehensible. He prays that they may be filled with the fullness of God. Let us look, at, look in detail at these uh, uh, petitions that Paul presents uh, that teach us not only how to pray, but what to pray for. It, it's important for us at the outset to know that all the, all the yous in this, uh, uh, in this passage are plural. So Paul is not here just praying for individual believers here. He's praying for the church in Ephesus and even us today. Paul's requests, his petitions are that the Ephesians and the church, if they are to perform the script of salvation that God has prepared for us, then we need God to do these things for us. Paul's first petition is that they would be strengthened in Christ. In uh, verse 16, in the beginning of 17, we read that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that 
Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Uh, notice that the Trinitarian passage, uh, the pattern that is implicit in these verses, that should jump at us right now. Paul prays to the Father that through the working of the Spirit, the Ephesians will be strengthened in Christ. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in answering these petitions. His main petition is that they would be strengthened with power. The scope of that strengthening is according to the riches of God's glory. The means of that strengthening is through the Holy Spirit. The sphere of that strengthening is their inner being. The result of that strengthening is that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. I haven't prayed like this in a long time or ever. Uh, these, these prayers teach us how to pray and what to pray. Paul's first petition is that God would strengthen the Ephesians. In other words, Paul prays for power. Well, who wouldn't like power? But the power that Paul prays for is not the kind of power that the world craves. He doesn't pray for physical or political power, but for Holy Spirit power. The power that is seen as weakness by the world. Yet the power by which God raised His Son from the dead and exalted Him to His right hand over all worldly powers. In Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, Paul would pray that he not only experience the power of Christ's resurrection, but share in Christ's sufferings. This power in weakness is the power by which those who are dead in their sins and trespasses are made alive. This power in weakness is the power by which sown enemies are united as one body. This is the power that is necessary if the Ephesians and we are to live the kind of life that Paul would describe in chapters 4 through 6, the life that speaks of the salvation that is accomplished by God. Paul prays that the, the sphere of this strengthening is our inner being. This can be understood in two ways. First, uh, given the, the plural pronouns, Paul is not merely asking for individuals to be strengthened, but for the church to be strengthened. The church, as we saw in chapter 2, is the new man in, in, uh, in, uh, in Christ. Paul is praying that this new man, the church, consisting of Jews and Gentiles, unified in Christ, be so strengthened in that union uh, by an increasing intimacy with Christ who dwells with them, among them. Second, Paul could also be referring to the inner being of the individual believers. He uses a similar expression in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, where he says, while he was wasting away outwardly because of his sufferings and persecutions and hardships, he was being renewed day by day in his inner being. The outcome of the strengthening by the Spirit in the inner being is that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. You may be wondering, isn't Paul writing to Christians? Doesn't Christ already dwell in their hearts through the Spirit? So what is this prayer? Uh, the result that he anticipates, the word dwell here has the sense of to take up residence. When Christ moves in to the church in our lives as believers, when He takes up residence in our lives, He brings about increasing changes in that church, in the lives of those believers, so that increasingly the church and that believer becomes conformed to Him. In chapters 4 through 6, Paul will describe the changes that need to take place 
in our lives. Here he prays that the Ephesians increasingly become like Christ by the power of the Spirit because Christ dwells in our hearts through the Spirit. This prayer will become an exhortation in chapter 4 verse 15 where Paul describes our growth to maturity as growing together in Christ. So what we have here is the language of discipleship. A call to grow in Christ likeness by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a big ask. Uh, is God able to answer Paul's petitions? Yes. Paul's prayer is that God answer his prayer according to the riches of his glory. God's glory is God's power. It's, in, it's inexhaustible. God's glory is not diminished by his giving. With him there is no lack. His resources to answer Paul's prayers are super abundant. Paul will conclude his prayer in this doxology by saying that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or think. But already here he indicates in his first petition when he requests God to answer him according to the riches of his glory that God is indeed able to answer our prayers. Petition leads to doxology because of who God is. His second petition is that they would comprehend Christ's love. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul's second petition is also for strength but this time it is for strength that the Ephesians will need to grow in the knowledge of Christ's incomprehensible love for them. Notice that they are already rooted and grounded in God's love for them in Christ Jesus. They are Christians. They have experienced the love of God in Christ. In earlier doxology in chapter 1, Paul has said that God had predestined them in love to be adopted as sons in Christ. Yet they needed to grow in the knowledge of the extent to which they and we are loved by Christ. A growth that is never ending because the love of Christ is inexhaustible, incomprehensible. You know, Paul is writing to believers who are in a similar position to his, resisting powers that seek to impose their will on them even though they have been vanquished by Christ. So whether Paul in imprisonment or Ephesians who are suffering, what would sustain them is an increasing experiential knowledge of the love of Christ. The word that is translated to comprehend as the idea uh, of to grasp, to take hold of as if uh, one's life depended on it. Why do we need to grow in the knowledge of our love of Christ? Well, it's the knowledge of the love of Christ that will keep us from sin. It's the knowledge of the love of Christ that will enable us to forgive one another. It's the knowledge of the love of Christ that grants us the courage to share our faith. It's the knowledge of the love of Christ that brings about our generosity toward those in need. It's the knowledge of the love of Christ that creates in us the longing to grow to be like Him. To grow in Christ's likeness by denying the flesh and yielding to the Spirit. This is a petition for us to grow in the knowledge of Christ's love for us, not our love for Christ. But yet, as we grow and deepen in the knowledge of how loved we are by Christ, our love for God, our love for one another, our love even for our enemies is enhanced and uh, we are able to love as God requires us to love. Just as much as children need to know 
that they are allowed by their parents if they are to mature in life so also we need to grow in our knowledge of and experience of the love of Christ if we are to mature in our faith in our obedience in our witness to our Lord notice also the knowledge of the love of God is not an independent Lone Ranger type of activity it is with the Saints that such knowledge of the love of Christ takes place we experience the love of Christ even as we see him at work in the lives of our fellow believers we need to tell our stories of our experiences of Christ's love stories that brought us that brought to faith uh, people our, our, our family members our colleagues uh, our acquaintances through our prayers stories of the love of Christ but by which he supplies all our needs according to his gracious and providential care stories of the love of Christ that sustains us in the darkest pits of this fallen world stories of the love of Christ that moves his people to unfathomable generosity stories of the love of Christ by which we are moved to forgive our enemies who have done immense wrong toward us all these and more are the ways in which we together with all the saints know the magnitude of Christ's love for us Paul prays that the believers would know the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's incomprehensible love the nearest conceptual parallel to this description of Christ's immeasurable and incomprehensible love is found in Romans 8 38 to 39 there Paul asserts I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord if Christ's love is immeasurable and incomprehensible then growing in the knowledge of Christ's love can never end the comprehension of the love of Christ can only be a gift of God such knowledge can be a product of our effort we need divine strength to be able to do that and that's why Paul prays his uh, third petition is that the Ephesians and we will be filled with the fullness of God that you may be filled with all the fullness of God his final petition rises from the first two those who are strengthened by the Spirit for the indwelling presence of Christ and increasingly comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ are to be filled with the fullness of God remember again that the you here is uh, plural Paul desires not just individual believers but the church to be filled with the fullness of God uh, Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 1 verse 19 that in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell so to be filled with the fullness of God is to be Christ-like that's God's purpose for us in salvation Paul's petition for the Ephesians and for us is that they and we will be all that he wants us to be uh, that is to be spiritually mature and that is to be more like Jesus in chapter 4 of Ephesians Paul repeats this petitions petition as an exhortation on how this is brought about in chapter 4 verses 11 to 13 he says and he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stat stature of the fullness of Christ 
To be fully mature is to be like Christ. That's what Paul prays that God would do for the church and for individual believers. So the journey of the Christian life is, a, is growing in Christ-likeness till the day when we see Him. And then we shall be like Him, John tells us. This is not something we can do on our own. We need the Spirit of God to form Christ in us. God's purposes for us are not accomplished by the flesh, but by the Spirit. God has to do it, and Paul prays that he would do what he requires of us. Paul concludes his prayer uh, with a doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul's petitions are that we grow in the strength of God's power through the Spirit and by the indwelling of Christ, so that rooted and grounded in Christ, we grow in the knowledge of, the, of Christ's inexhaustible and incomprehensible love, all that toward the end that Christ is fully formed in us. When we look at each other, we know that we realize we are far from Paul's desire for the Ephesians and for us. Is God able to do what uh, Paul is asking of him for the Ephesians and for us? Yes. As a matter of fact, Paul says he can do more than what we can ask or think according to God's power that is work at work within us. Notice God's power is already at work within us. The power that is at work within us is the Spirit of God through whom Christ dwells in us. Paul's confidence in God's answer for his prayer that is according to God's purpose and will is that God is able to do not just what seems impossible for us but exceedingly abundantly more than what we can ask or think. The Apostle John agrees with Paul in First uh, John 5 14 to 15 he writes and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us in whatever he, we ask we know that we have the request that we have asked of him no wonder then Paul writes to the Philippians with great confidence that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ this my brothers and sisters is our God he's able to do what he purposes and he is generous beyond measure he's the one who can do immeasurably more Paul's ultimate aim in these petitions is that God will be glorified in Christ and his church by granting the Ephesians this petitions that's the ultimate aim for all prayers that God would be glorified so we ask for the glory of God this is the ultimate aim of everything in life God is glorified in Christ by his power manifested in weakness and shame of the cross where he vanquished the powers and accomplished our salvation and our unity. God's glory is manifest when the church resists all attempts by the powers to divide us and create animosity between us. God's glory is manifested in the church when the church is the agent of peace in a hostile culture through its humble service. See, God's glory in the church is not some unrealized ideal, but can be a present reality when the church lives out its cross-shaped power of the indwelling spirit uh, 
that who forms Christ in us. God who is already glorified in his son is even more glorified in him when the church loves and obeys its Lord and proclaims him to the ends of the earth. To him, Paul says, be the glory in the church, even our church. And in Christ Jesus, through all generations, even our generation, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We are not done. So how do we live to the praise of God's glory? Uh, Paul will lay out the script in the next three chapters. If God has done all this for us, uh, this is what life ought to look like. But we don't have to wait till then. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21 is also a script for how we ought to live. We participate in the mystery of God's saving work by our participation in our triune God. Both the invocation and doxology in Paul's prayer tell us who God is. Who is God? He is the one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who is God? He is the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Who is God? He is the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Who is God? He is the one who does all things to the praise of His glory. We call that theology. Theology is the knowledge of God and theology done well leads to doxology which is the praise of God. The knowledge of God always leads to the praise of God. It's only in knowing God that we know who we are and how we ought to live in this universe. We know ourselves are right only when we, know, when we see ourselves in light of who God is. Everything we do ought to flow from the knowledge of God. It's our knowledge of God that informs our life together as believers our prayers, even as we saw in Paul's letter, uh, our mission, all of life. It's the knowledge of God that keeps us from the ways of the fallen world. Uh, we learn that God is the Father of all people by virtue of His being Creator. If that is who God is, then racism is an affront to the identity of God as the Father of all people by virtue of being their Creator and creating them in his own image. If God is creating all, is gathering all things in heaven and on earth to himself in Christ, then all forms of hatred and animosity and strife are to work against what God is doing. If God is generous beyond measure, uh, then exploitation and oppression of people are wrong. From the beginning, God intended that the knowledge of good and evil would come through a relational knowledge with Him, not by our own attempts as our first parents did. So the question for us is, how well do we know our God? Do we know Him, as the show says, do we know more than a fifth grader? Is that what the standard was? <laughs> do we know God more than a fifth grader? Um, see, when we love someone, we want to grow in the knowledge of the one we love. Small steps in that direction could be as simple as taking a class with New York School of the Bible on God and His attributes. I'm thinking about maybe a, a small group where we can study theology together, leading to lives that are to the praise of God's glory. We participate in the salvation, God's saving work for us 
through prayer. We began our sermon by saying that we, we learn to pray through the prayers of Scripture. Uh, this morning we learned to pray from the Apostle Paul, but we can also learn to pray from one another. The Wednesday night prayer group has been a, such a great influence in teaching me how to pray. Uh, even as a new believer, I learned to pray from the saints of old who are no longer with us, but some of you may remember their names. Emma Smith, uh, Florence Capis, and Miriam Herman, and others. These women, they, they, I learned how to pray from them. Uh, but not only did I learn how to pray from them, but I signed them up to pray for me when God called me to be an overseas missionary. Uh, I still learn how to pray. The 40 or 50 uh, prayer warriors who go gather on Wednesday night in our Zoom prayer meetings. Uh, when a Vivet Hayes or a Joyce Minot or a David Morales pray, uh, we participate in their prayers. We learn how to pray. Scripture, scripture not only teaches us how to pray, but what to pray. If Paul doesn't just pray that we grow in our intellectual knowledge of God's power and God's love, but in our experiential knowledge of both. Now, if you speak, if you're honest with ourselves, our prayers are too small. We have a God who can do immeasurably more than what we can ask or think, and we go to Him with a shopping list that looks no different than one uh, a pagan who does not know Him might desire. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that God already knows that we need the basics of life and is able to provide for it. Instead, Jesus says we ought to pray for and first seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Pray boldly. You can't outdo God with your ask. But ask according to His will and His purposes as He has revealed in Scripture. Ask God for a deeper knowledge of His power so that He opens our eyes to the untapped potential of His power at work within us so that in all that we are and all that we do, even in our eating and in our drinking, we, will, may, we may so live that it would be to the praise of His glory. We participate in God's saving work by, our, our, by participating in, in God's power. How is God's power made known? It's, it's made known in creation, but it's also made known in the death, resurrection, and exaltation of His Son. See, the power of God is not uh, some triumphalism or arrogance or violence as worldly power is often exercised. The power of God is known through the cross. The power of God was made known through an imprisoned apostle through whose proclamation Christ gathered people from all nations into the church. The power of God still works in the same way, in our weakness, in our humility, in our service. However, we forsake the power of God for lesser powers, such as political power. Now, evangelicalism lies discredited in the public sphere today because we sought the power of Caesar over the power of Christ. We have sought the power of legislative and judicial influence over the power of the Spirit to transform people. There are supernatural powers arrayed against us to drag us back into conformity with the world. These powers can be overcome only through our reliance on the power of, this, of God, power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's return, my brothers and sisters, to the power of God manifested in His way, loving the unlovable, caring for the least amongst us, proclaiming Christ in the face of rejection and persecution. 
then we'll once again see that uh, even as it was said of the early church, these people have turned the world upside down. Or as we would say it, we turned the world right side up when we exercise the power of God that is in Christ Jesus. So one small step in that direction uh, would be to join our outreach pastor, Tom Dassel. He's putting together a, a service project-based outreach team. Uh, please see your bulletin for details. He would love to talk to you. God's power is manifested when the church serves the community in which it exists. Fourthly, we participate in the mystery of God's saving work uh, by participating in God's presence. We learn today that God, in, uh, that Christ indwells us through the Spirit and God intends to fill the church and our lives with His fullness. That means God is present to us in the church. God is present to the world through the church. So when we greet, when we meet each other here as a church, we don't just meet together as uh, Tom and the Claude and the Tim and the Kathy and the Winsome. We meet together as Tom and Claude and Tim and Kathy and Winsome who are indwelt by Christ through the Spirit. We encounter Christ in them, through them. Christ is present to us through these brothers and sisters who belong to Him along with us. That's a glorious privilege. No wonder the scripture commands us not to forsake the gathering or assembling together of the saints because that's where Christ is present to us. It is through Him that we encourage one another to love and good deeds. Brothers and sisters, if you're local and you're still online, uh, if you're able, please consider joining with us in our in-person in -person gathering so that together we may experience the presence of God in our midst. Finally, we participate in the mystery of God's salvation uh, by participating as God's people. God is not only present to us in the church, God is present to the world through us as the church. We are the household of God. The world gets a foretaste of what God will one day for, do for all creation by looking at our life together. The church exists for the sole purpose of glorifying God by loving Him and loving one another. Paul's second petition was that we would grow in the knowledge of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. If God's love toward us is manifested by His loving deeds, acts toward us, our love for our God our love for one another, our love for even our enemies can't be just some in sentimental internal feeling. They ought to take forms of practice. Love ought to define our lives together and our life in the world. What does that Christ-like love look like? Well, let me conclude with that famous love chapter that's been co-opted as a marriage passage. It, it, it's primarily a Christian life together passage, only then it's a, it's a passage for marital love. Paul writes there, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Brothers and sisters, let us pray together that we grow, as Paul prayed, in strength 
in our inner being through the Spirit so that Christ is fully formed in us. Let us pray to God our Father that we will never stop growing in the knowledge of the love of Christ poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and expressed toward God one another and even those who are enemies. Let us pray that we grow together to, full, to the full maturity that God intends for us by yielding to the Holy Spirit who forms us in Christ likeness. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you not only ask us to pray, you teach us how to pray uh, through, your, uh, through the prayers of your people as recorded in the scriptures, whether it's the prayer of the psalmist or the prayers of your prophets or the prayers of your apostles. Uh, God, there is so much we need to learn about how we ought to pray and, uh, and to come before you with those requests that only you can answer. Thank you that you are a great God who cares for all our needs from the simplest to this amazingly what seems impossible to us that we would be more like Jesus. In all of this, you are the God who answers, you are the God who provides when we ask according to your goodwill and purpose. Help us to pray big in Jesus through your spirit that we would look more and more like our Lord every day in how we respond to one another, how we interact with the world, and most importantly, in how, our, how we live our lives together so that indeed as a church, we proclaim Christ by our love for one another. May your name be honored and glorified amongst us as your people in Calvary, for we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212 212- Nine seven five zero one seven zero. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.